Let us continue praising the Lord together as we worship by opening up the Word of God. If you're a guest with us, we've been in the letter of 1 Peter. Today we are again in chapter 3, looking principally at verse 18, which, yes, just happened to be the next verse in line for us to preach. I'll begin reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, making my way down to verse 18. These are the words of the Lord. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Amen. Amen. These are the words of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come into Your presence as we do each week, asking for Your help. Apart from a move of Your Spirit, we are incapable of understanding this Word. I am incapable of preaching it rightly and your people are incapable of hearing it and applying it to their lives that they might be conformed to the image of your Son. We confess our dependency on you right now that we need you in this hour. Please be with us. Open our minds that we might see Christ and each of us might be transformed into his image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, He is risen. He is risen Amen. Amen. I'm very thankful that in God's providence, we have landed on this verse for Easter Sunday. If you're a guest with us, you should know that at Christ the, Christ the King, we preach expositionally, which means we preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible during the preaching hour each Lord's Day. This morning's text wasn't selected to fit an Easter theme. It really was the next passage in line, but God writes the best stories and knows how best to feed His sheep. Well, I confess to you that I'm fairly new to a weekly preaching routine, and having preached verse by verse for several months now, I've often wondered how some pastors who preach topically pick a new sermon topic every Sunday. Um, have you ever felt like a pastor was really scraping the bottom of the barrel for a sermon idea? I wonder, what is the worst Easter sermon you've ever heard? What is the worst Easter sermon you've ever heard? Perhaps you've heard a, an Easter sermon that was titled something like, The Stones in Your Life That Need to Be Rolled Away. 
Or maybe why Jesus folded the napkin in his grave. I'm not making these up. The, how the women at the tomb were great leaders. Jesus can raise anything in your life, your marriage, your money, etc., etc. Well, you know, beloved, that Easter is not about you. It is about the name above all names, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the Alpha and the Omega. Easter is about King Jesus. And to Him alone be the glory. Unfortunately, Easter in America is somewhat of a spectator sport. People come for the annual show to be entertained or even emotionally moved. Consider for just a moment the transforming power of looking to the resurrected Christ. Paul told the Corinthians, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, you may have had your fair share of lousy Easter sermons, but have you also come to church in hopes of becoming more like Christ? Or are you at church? Have you been at church in the past for Easter entertainment? Does your Easter attendance look like evaluating what is said? Or does it yield transformation into the image of Christ in your life? Today's passage is a brief look at the work of Christ on behalf of sinful men. What reward did Christ receive for His sufferings? And does the surety of His reward change the way that you will live today? Well, I hope it does. As you can see in our text today in verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. Now I want to connect the dots. How does this idea follow what we just talked about last week? This whole section from verse 8, which is, uh, or excuse me, from verse 8 leading to today's verse, has been about God's promise to bless His obedient children, even if they should suffer because of their obedient behavior. You may remember that Peter has already called our attention once to Christ's sufferings back in chapter 2. He said, For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. And today, in our passage, Peter adds further encouragement by looking again to the sufferings of Christ. But he's doing this for a different reason. In chapter 2, Peter was addressing a Christian's calling. Because Christ was called to suffer, so you are called to suffer. This is your job description. You will have tribulation in this life. But take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. A slave is not above his master. Because Christ suffered for righteousness, we are called to the same. But today, in chapter 3, verse 18, Peter isn't talking about our calling. He is encouraging us about the surety of our rewards. He is encouraging us about the surety of our rewards. He said in the verse we concluded with last week, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing good rather 
than doing wrong. Now, I've mentioned something like this in weeks past, but if you were a member of Peter's early church, you should expect a hand in that church, perhaps your own, to shoot up at this point. Peter, what do you mean by it is better? What do you mean? How so is it better for me to suffer for doing good than for doing evil? Now, why would they ask that, Chris? Well, because people in Peter's church had lost businesses. Some had been kicked out of homes or disowned by family. Perhaps a wife was angry at a husband for taking them to join the new cult. Perhaps he was having trouble getting food for his kids. How's it better, Peter? How's it better for me to suffer for doing good than for doing evil? I'm kind of tempted to cut some corners and, and take a few shortcuts at this point because I'm not seeing it as that much better. The apostle writes of Christ's sufferings and his ultimate victory here as a means of encouraging the saints to persevere in doing good while suffering. Peter's response could be summarized as a question. Oh, you're suffering, are you? Do you remember how Christ was blessed for his sufferings? Do you remember how he was blessed for his sufferings? Now, before I get into the details of this passage and the rewards that Christ won for his self and his glory and also as a surety for us a little later on in this passage, I want to talk about the way that New Testament authors interpreted the Old Testament scriptures and also understood the life of the Lord Jesus. In biblical times, the world was far more sacramental, if you'll allow me to use that term, than it is now. This is to say that for the majority of human history, reality was not just a list of arbitrary or scientific facts, but facts that acted in cadence with a great cosmic story or dance, if you will, that was and is playing out before all humanity. From the changing of seasons to the passing of loved ones, to the movement of the constellations, the ancients saw everything in the universe as meaningful, as packed with meaning. It all signified something. It pointed towards something greater. It had its telos or end in the great story in which God has been telling since the beginning of the world. Today, we think that we're so much more advanced than that old way of thinking. With science as our creed and technology as our interpretive tool, we are going to finally understand what is actually going on in the cosmos. Well, how arrogant of us. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery and quite the festering example, if you'll allow me. It has a tremendously negative effect not only on the way that we as Westerners think today, but also on the way that you read your Bible. And this is really what I wanted to get to. Where we only understand one appropriate way to read the Scriptures, the ancients would have seen multiple. They actually would have seen four. I'll give them to you in turn. And yes, this does make huge sense in today's text. First of all, there is the literal historical method of interpreting Scripture. Scripture means what it meant in real history to real people at that time. 
Scripture means what it meant in real time to real people in history. That's the way that typically when we read our Bibles, we think of interpreting and understanding our Bibles. It's not wrong, but consider these others. The tropological method, or we might call this the moral method of reading the Bible. Scripture has meaning in that it shows us how we should live in light of the examples, both good and bad, that are recorded in the Scriptures. There's the allegorical method of interpretation. Scripture has meaning in the types and shadows it shows us through various characters, primarily in the Old Testament. And lastly, the anagogical interpretive method or the climb or ascent method of interpretation in reading your Bible. This points us to the direction that we're going. It tells us where all things are headed. Again, using that word telos or end, this is what is finally going to happen on the last day. Though only one of these is the orthodox allowed Bible study method, the writers of the Bible themselves use all four interpretive methods. And you've already seen three of the four just in 1 Peter alone. Peter's written of the literal historical events throughout this letter, literal historical events that happened in the life of Jesus and also in the people of Israel. He wrote at least one moral interpretation already, and I've mentioned it. It was from 1 Peter chapter 2 where we looked at the example of Christ and were called to follow that example. Jesus was this way. You also should be this way. And in today's verse, he is teaching from the life of Christ anagogically, meaning look where this is headed. Christ suffered in the moment, but keep your eyes on the prize. Look to the end. That's where you're going. Don't lose hope. Your assurity stands in heaven for you. Persevere to the end. Christ did not lose his reward. And because of that, neither will you. The reason I bring this up is because Christians today are typically allergic to any reading of the text that does not just recount the historical facts. And I think there's a reason that we've kind of settled into this scientific, historical, literal interpretation as being the only allowed interpretive method. When you go beyond the facts of Scripture, you actually have to apply the text to your life. When you go beyond just a factual reading of the text, you actually have to do something with the text. It demands something of you. It makes demands on your life. It should be impossible for us as Christians to read about the grumbling of Israel in the desert and not consider our own occasional, perhaps frequent, sourness of heart. By the way, that's a tropological reading or moral reading of the Scriptures. And God smiles on you reading your Bible that way. How does Paul encourage the Galatian believers not to run back to works righteousness? He says, are you Hagar or are you Sarah? Are you born of Hagar or are you born of Sarah? We would all say, neither. Allegorical reading of the text. The Apostle Paul sees meaning behind simple characters in the text. In order to encourage believers to suffer for righteousness, Peter looks at the final rewards of Christ's suffering. And I'll list them for you, just that we're going to go through here this week and in the next two weeks. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. 
He was made alive in the Holy Spirit. He has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God. The angels, authorities, and powers are now subject to Him. And He brings the church, that's us, His bride. He brings the church into the presence of the Father. And why? Because God's blessings for His righteousness were promised and that's a guarantee. This is Peter's point, beloved. If Christ's blessings for obedience are guaranteed, if Christ's blessings for His obedience are guaranteed, so are yours. So are yours. But how is that possible, Chris? How am I worthy? Why would God bless me for anything? And this, beloved, is where the Easter story makes all the sense in the world. The sufferings of Christ. Peter said that Christ suffered for sins, unless you have an NASB Bible, NASB 95 uses the word died. Christ died for sins. Now this is what's called a textual variant in the old manuscripts that we have of both Old Testament and New Testament, oftentimes there are areas where there seems to be a disagreement or discrepancy in those manuscripts. And so the translators have to look at manuscripts and say, well, which one is the right translation? Is it Christ suffered for our sins or Christ died for our sins? In almost every case of a New Testament textual variant, there is so little significant difference between the words that are used, it would not make a difference which way you go one way or the other. In the others, where there might be a significant difference in the meaning of the text, it doesn't change anything theologically about what we believe. You can trust your New Testament and Old Testament scriptures. The way God brought the Bible to us is preserved and still perfect for us understanding and growing up into the fullness of Christ Jesus. Well, here, is it suffered or is it died? You know that um, at this point, Peter has used the word suffer quite a few times. He's actually used it 11 times in 1 Peter at this point. He's not used the verb died to this point. It's likely that he was thinking of the death of Christ, but he used the word suffer to make the connection between his readers and their Savior, to connect them to Jesus. Here's the truth of the matter. Christ suffered on behalf of sinners, which culminated in his death, and he knowing that God promised him victory in the end. It's common this time of year for Christians to consider the brutality that was experienced by our Savior. How He was mocked and struck in the face. How He was spit on. One of the psalmists records that He gave Himself to those who pull out the beard. How He was scourged with a whip that had sharp pieces of bone and metal braided onto the ends. He likely received around 40 of those strikes and almost immediately had a robe put onto His open wounds and a crown of thorn pressed repeatedly into his head. There's a game that Roman soldiers would have played with non-Roman prisoners. We actually have records of this. Where they would have struck the crown of thorns with the flat part of their swords, and this was their way of honoring an insurrectionist. Then they would have removed the robe and forced Jesus to carry his own cross, which he could only physically bear for a short time, 
to the place where they would have nailed him by his wrists and ankles. By the way, the Greek word for hand includes the uppermost portion of the wrist. This is likely where they put the nail in Jesus. They would have nailed him to the wooden beams and then lifting him up by ropes until the cross fell into a pre-dug hole which was to support it. You can imagine the pain as the weight and fall of the cross would have jarred the Lord and sent sharp pain from his pierced limbs all over his body. And then the worst part would have begun. As the convicted criminal, though truly innocent as a spotless lamb, in the place of ruined sinners as you sang this morning, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, withstood the wrath of God against all of our sins for about six hours. It is impossible to even imagine what this would have been like. No mere human could have endured this level of punishment without immediately being destroyed. Christ was truly God, for only God could bear this kind of punishment all the way to the end. You can't see this in your New Testament text, but in verse 18 when Peter says, Christ also suffered for sins, he's drawing on language from the Old Testament Septuagint in relation to the sin offering. You remember that offering that the priests would have brought in on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people, which would have made holy for a time those for whom they were sacrificed for. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Mark that church, never make perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But then down in Hebrews 10 verse 12, But Jesus having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. What was Christ's reward for His sufferings? I would ask you, Christian, where are your sins? They're not on you. They were hung on the tree of Calvary, on the spotless Lamb of God, If you here today have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, I challenge you, scour the universe and tell me where you can find your sins. You will not find them. Not at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, the deepest place on earth, 36,000 feet deep. You will not find them in the deepest reaches of space. We're just estimating they're billions of light years away from us, the deepest reaches of space. You will not find them in the Lamb's book of life on judgment day in heaven. And you will not find them ruining your heavenly Father's love for you. Beloved, if you are in Christ, His sufferings and death have put away your sins 
forever. I ask you this, church. Will you be rewarded for suffering for Christ? Well, ask yourself this. Did Christ lose His reward? The text says that Christ suffered for sins one time, once for all. Peter now speaks of the uniqueness of Christ's sufferings and sacrifice. The Lamb of God was slain one time for all time. Again, from Hebrews chapter 10. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Pay attention to that language. For by one offering, He has perfected, past tense, for all time, those who are being sanctified. Beloved, because of the suffering and death of Christ, your perfection is already a guarantee. It is already complete. You don't see that now, and you are still being sanctified in real time, but the debt has been paid. After high school, I spent several years in and out of college, and I went to school... And then I dropped out to go to work, and then I went to school again. And in the fall of 2006, through a providential series of circumstances, I had left UT, taken a full-time job teaching abstinence education for Hope Resource Center, and transferred to Johnson University in their night program. This was a pretty significant story for our family, and I'd love to share more, but one point that is worth telling is this. Tammy and I had the money to pay for the first semester, but we didn't know how we were going to make it all the way through the night program at Johnson. We just knew that God wanted us to do it. And the night that I showed up for orientation, when I was also expected to pay for the first semester, the receptionist noticed my name and asked me to step outside. She then informed me that an anonymous donor had written in to underwrite my undergraduate work for the entire duration of my time at Johnson. That's right, all of it was paid for, and that was over $10,000. My debt was paid. Now, I still had to go to class. I still had to get the grades. I still had to pass. And by the way, I was very motivated to do that. But the debt was paid. It was finished. And when Jesus said, it is finished, that's what he meant. It's over. No more debt. No more condemnation. This is a contrast to every other world religion. The Roman Catholics must continually go to Mass. The Mormons have to go on a mission. The Muslims work continually through the five pillars of Islam. Buddhists seek enlightenment through continual meditation and isolation. Secularists never stop working to free their minds from the knowledge of God in hopes of setting themselves up as gods. And mainstream evangelical churches in America continue to work for racial reconciliation, which Jesus already paid for with His own blood. Amen. Do you know what His one-time-only sacrifice means? It means there's no more condemnation, beloved. Look at what His suffering accomplished. Now, before we move on to the next phrase, I want to say one last thing about this. Your translation might say, as I read earlier, once for all. There's one Greek word there, and it's hapax, which means once in a punctiliar moment in time. The text would literally read from Greek to English, because indeed Christ once for sins suffered. 
Let me read that again. Because indeed Christ once for sins suffered. Peter wasn't saying that Christ died for all people. Or even at this point, he wasn't saying Christ died for all of the elect. We know that that's true. He's making a point about a moment in time and how the sufferings of Christ accomplished the atonement in that moment. The New Living Translation actually has a good read on this verse. It says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. This is one of the main reasons that the Reformers broke away from the Catholic Church. They said that Christ in the Mass needed to be presented again and again and again in what they call an unbloody sacrifice. How they would, the priest himself, go into heaven, bring Christ down in the elements, and present Him again to the people. And the Reformers said, no, Peter said it was once, and that was it. It's done. We love the song, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. The lyrics say, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He was given one time. The song goes on to say, No fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future is sure. The price has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and He was raised to overthrow the grave. Paul said something similar in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, he says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. I ask you, church, Will God overlook your suffering for any act of righteousness on your part? What about that cup of cold water that you gave to one of the least of Christ's people? Jesus says, by no means will you lose your reward. And why? Because it was secured by Christ once for all time. Jesus' one act of righteousness guarantees not just His reward, but ours also. Now, let's look at the glory of substitution. Verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, you can't see in English that there are singulars and plurals in this sentence. But again, in Greek, it would literally read, the righteous one for the many unrighteous. The righteous one for the many unrighteous. How glorious a truth is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Job says in Job 14 verse 4, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Looks around at all humanity, at the accusers who are trying to condemn Him. And he says, is there anybody on this planet that can bring an unclean thing out of its uncleanness and make it clean. No, there's not one. Think about this in terms of a proverb. A man reaps what he sows. We are all born in sin. We all, because of that, do sin. And because of that, we reap the condemnation that we deserve for our sin. And yet here, in the beautiful truth of substitution... 
Jesus chooses to reap what we sow so that we can reap what He sowed. Consider the love of Christ in this. Who really wants to suffer for an evildoer? Who would suffer for an evildoer? Paul says nobody. Nobody would do that. One will hardly die for even a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His love to us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is what C.S. Lewis in his Narnia series called the deeper magic. By the way, Lewis in no means is trying to be irreverent when he uses the term magic. He just understands that children often understand the truths of Scripture better than adults do. Surely you've wondered how God would accept the substitution of Christ who committed no sin in place of us who deserved every bit the comeuppance that we asked for with our sin. How do children describe mysteries like this? Mom and Dad, it's magic. He just stepped in and took my place and that's the way that it works. You remember in the Narnia stories how Edmund had become a traitor and how the white witch had demanded to have him killed. She did this based on what she calls deep magic, which in the Narnia stories is the equivalent to the moral law of God. Edmund broke one of God's laws. He's now a traitor. He now must be punished. The witch says, Unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned in fire and water. And some people accuse Lewis here of promoting a view of the atonement called the ransom to Satan theory. If you keep reading the story though, what he ends up writing undermines the ransom to Satan theory completely. Aslan substitutes himself for Edmund, dies in his place, and then comes back to life. He explains why this happened to Edmund's sisters, Susan and Lucy. He says, Though the witch knew the deep magic... There is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. If she could have looked a little farther back, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And our children read stories like this and they say, yeah, that's how he did it. That's it. It's easy, mom and dad. I understand. Jesus loves faith like a child. Lewis once said to one of his goddaughters in a letter that I write these stories to you so that when you grow up and become an adult, one day you'll love to learn, or you'll love to read fairy stories again. He wanted that faith like a child to remain. Consider this, church. Christ reaped what we sowed so that we might reap what He sowed. And he still got his reward. And he still got his reward. God did not forget to reward the righteous victim for his sacrifice for us. He actually took your sin on himself, received a just punishment for that sin, and then God still rewarded him. Let me ask you, do you suffer While doing good for nothing, did Christ suffer and receive no blessing? Peter goes on to say, 
that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That He might bring us to God. I want you to consider how often this theme of our being presented or brought to God comes up in the New Testament. It's a frequent theme in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2 verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Just a few verses later in verse 18, For through Christ we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Again in Ephesians chapter 3, This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And again, from Hebrews chapter 10, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Christ died that His reward might be, I can bring my wife into my house. I'm going to bring my girl home. She's welcome here. You likely know that in ancient Judaism, the high priest was required once a year after an extensive purification process, having made sacrifices on his own behalf for his own sins, to enter the Holy of Holies in the innermost part of the temple in order to present the spotless lamb on the Day of Atonement. He alone could enter in, and his safety in that moment was not sure. His priestly robe had bells attached to it so that if he was struck down by God for some reason or another, those waiting outside would have been notified. I am told that he also wore a rope around his waist so that in the event of his untimely expiration, he could be removed from the Holy of Holies without anyone else having to enter in. All this was to keep sinful men alive by distancing them from a holy God. So what did the sufferings of Christ accomplish for you, beloved? Well, imagine for just a minute, let's do a little thought experiment, that the temple were still there today. All of us in this room could not get past the court of the Gentiles. That's the furthest extreme on the outside of the temple. But because of His death, Jesus can take you and all the Gentile believing further up and further in. He can take you through the court of the women and beyond the court of Israel where Jewish men would congregate. He cannot be stopped at the priest's court since He Himself is now the great high priest. Nor can we, for you are with Him a holy priesthood. He can take you directly into the temple itself, past the incense bowls and candles symbolizing the presence of God. He can walk you right up to the curtain that 1 Kings 6 records was about 60 feet high. As Jewish historian Josephus records, it was woven four inches thick and could not be drawn back by two horses. But because of the death of Christ, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. There is no more barrier. Christ can and did bring you to God. 
Now, the blessed truth, beloved, is that it's even better than that. The reality is better than that. That temple's gone. It was completely destroyed. It isn't needed anymore. Why? Because God wanted the temple of God to be in us. The holy of holies is now within each of us. We, Peter says, like living stones, are being built up into the temple for the worship of God. Christ brings you to God, and now God has come to live with you. If God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Christ give us all things? Do you sense, brethren, that if it is God's will that you suffer, that it's better to suffer for doing good than to doing evil? Lastly, Peter says that Christ was put to death or having been put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. Peter concludes, verse 18, with one final reward for Christ's suffering. Yes, He was put to death. His heart quit beating. His brain waves were no longer active. His whole body became cold. And then, three days later, He was raised from the dead. He was raised by the Father, He was raised by the Spirit, and Scripture testifies, He raised Himself. By the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. He was raised, not to a temporal body, but to a resurrection body. When you hear terms like flesh and spirit in the same sentence, don't get fooled into thinking about angels on clouds that are partly invisible playing harps together. That's the old Gnostic heresy trying to rear its ugly head again. People think of the resurrected Jesus today similarly to the way that one might see a cursed crew member from the Black Pearl from Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, he can drink wine and eat broiled fish and then they just kind of like fall through him. It's as if we consider the resurrected Christ as being an immaterial being. They expected to see Christ again, but when they saw Him, they considered Him a ghost. But Jesus' resurrection body is not less real than ours, but more real than ours. His blessing in return for His suffering and the losing of His body was not a downgrade, but a huge upgrade. On the evening of that day, John records in chapter 20 of his gospel, on the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus still came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Can Jesus, I ask, pass through walls and lock doors because he is immaterial? Is he now in his resurrection body a ghost? Is he less real? What if rather he can move effortlessly through our world because he himself has reached the final state of man and we are still just the shadows of what is to come? What if he is the real solid feature of the new creation and we are still just blueprints? Be assured of this. Everyone will be raised on the last day. Daniel says that some will awake to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. If you have not seen, understood, and forsaken your sin here today, you have not turned instead 
to the resurrected Jesus who is able to save you from your sin. If you have not placed your trust in Christ alone to rescue you from the judgment of God rightly due to you for your sin, you will still rise on the last day with a resurrection body. You will. But it will be to shame and everlasting contempt. In that place, the Bible tells us, there will be weeping forever and the constant gnashing of teeth of those who suffer but eternally refuse to repent of their sins. If, however, you here today see that you are indeed a great sinner before God and you turn to this Christ whom I've been speaking of, trusting that His sacrifice will make you guiltless before God and on the last day, as real and permanent as He is this day, then you shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. And it is that hope that we have put all of our faith and trust in. Suffering for the sake of righteousness, beloved, is not joyful in the moment. It can be tremendously difficult. It may get much harder for us as a church. We are told that in order to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. Will your standing for Christ come at a great cost? Will you get fired? Will you lose a family inheritance? Will you make enemies in your extended family? Will the world slander you across international social media so that you can't go anywhere without being hated? Will you go on a government watch list and have your life tracked by a state that hates you and the God you worship? Will you go to jail for trying to rescue a baby? Or will you just have to put your own sin to death in your own home again and again and again because you see that the witness of your life is falling short of your testimony to follow Jesus? Can I encourage you this morning, beloved? You won't. You cannot lose your reward. You cannot. Jesus paid too high a price for you or anyone in His family to mess that up. God has removed your sin in the one-time sacrifice of Christ. He was substituted for your sake. In His resurrection body, He brought you to God no longer as a slave to sin, but as a son or daughter of the King of the universe and a fellow heir with Christ Himself. No, beloved, you can't lose your reward. God guarantees that. To the last day, He guarantees that your faith will persevere. So also will that reward that God has prepared for those who love Him be waiting for you at the end. And I conclude with these words from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance... The race that is set before us, as Peter encouraged us this morning, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and receiving His reward, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, why? 
so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. It is glorious. It is precious. It is wonderful. Jesus, we thank you that you live today. We praise you because you live today. Because you live today, we know that we do not labor for nothing. We know that the efforts that we put forth here for you are seen. Even the smallest efforts, even the cup of cold water is not missed by you. And perhaps we would give a cup of cold water and lose much for the sake of the kingdom. But we, because of your sacrifice, Jesus, we know we will persevere. We will have assurance that on that day we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, help us to persevere. Help us to remember that though there is much darkness in this world, it can't overcome your light now. We, as your lights in this world, can step through what sometimes feels like hell. But no longer can hell come into us. Thank you for setting us free through your victory for us. May all glory always be yours. Father, we pray these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.